15 from our sermon text for quite some time. Looking forward to getting the chance to study it, to understand it, to apply it to my life, Lord willing to apply it to yours. I, I know many of you have been encouraged by this text in the past. Uh, just based off our conversations just this week, I know how significant this passage has been for many of you, not only this week, but even for decades. Now, I'm not sure when I was first introduced to this passage. I grew up in a home where the Bible was regularly uh, discussed and quoted. I went to churches where the Bible was regularly taught. But my first distinct core memory of this passage is from Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, it's probably the best football movie ever made. And it's the story of uh, the football team at the 1971 T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And Denzel Washington, he plays the hard-nosed football coach whose job it is to integrate a highly divided team in a violently divided city. And the fictionalized version of that that came out about 25 years ago uh, still, still works. It's wonderful. And the, there's this moment in the middle of the movie where the team has come back from camp, where they all finally were able to come together with beautiful sports montages. And now they're back in the city, and the city's not changed. And the pressures that come from the city are starting to, to wedge and to, to drive the team apart. And after a, a lackluster win, they, they call a players-only meeting. And they get together and they start to talk about how if what they built at camp can't come back to town, then it's nothing. And then one of the linemen looks over at the quarterback and he says, Rev, Rev, it's just like, it's just like what you're always telling me when I don't want to work on my homework. Even young men will grow tired and weary. Even young men will stumble and fall, Rev. But those who trust in the Lord... They will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. Like eagles, y'all. Like eagles. They will run and not grow faint. And then the boys start clapping again. They get in sync. They get in unity. Goosebumps rise up on your arms. The captain jumps in. He rallies the team. And from that moment until the championship, nothing can divide this team. Wonderful. <laughs> but I have a question. Is that really what Isaiah 40 is all about? Is that really its point? Or, or did the Titans miss something? Have they missed something far deeper, far more significant, far more eternal than their football season? I think that they have. And I'd like with, for you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we've been over the last couple weeks. And we're going to close out our sermon series here looking at verses 27 through 31. Now, if you're using the Pewback uh, Bible in front of you, it's red. It's on page 600. It's about halfway through the Bible. And just as a note, if you don't own a Bible that's easy for you to read, we would love for you to take that one. It's our gift to you. We believe that in that Bible you will find the words of life. And we would encourage you to read it 
and to meditate on it and to think well about what the Lord has to say to you through it. So over the last three weeks, we've been in Isaiah 40. And if you're just joining us, this chapter serves as an important junction point in the book of Isaiah. So in the first 39 chapters, Isaiah has been warning the people that the exile is coming. And because of their unfaithfulness and their rebellion against God, they're about to be carried away as captives. But in chapter 40, our chapter, he switches gears and he begins to speak to those generations that will come later who are on their way back from that exile from Babylon. Their time of hardship is over. Their sentence is complete. Pardon has been granted to them and secured by the Lord God himself. And now God comforts his people. What we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that comfort comes primarily in these sweeping descriptions of how he describes himself. He's the incomparable creator of the universe with the strength to move mountains and to call out the heavenly hosts. And yet with that strength, he is still tender enough to care for each one of his people like a shepherd that cradles his lambs. But despite God's incredible track record for rescuing his people, and despite all the promises that he's made to them for millennia, their circumstances and their limited perspectives have sown seeds of doubt. And those have blossomed into outright accusations that impugn God's ability and God's character. They've been asking these questions all along. Can they trust him? Is God really able to rescue them? Does he really want to rescue them? And we'll see those questions and the answers to them in our passage today. Now, this courtroom drama has been building for us for the last three weeks, and now we come to the closing arguments. What we'll see is that the prosecution will present first, and then the Lord will respond. Follow along as I read Isaiah 40, starting in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. A simple way to remember this passage is is to know that the everlasting God strengthens the weary who wait on him. The everlasting God strengthens the weary who wait on him. Praise God. And the passage, as short as it is, breaks down into three small chunks. Verse 27 is an accusation. The people of Israel are accusing God of falling down on the job. Verses 28 and 29 give us God's answer to that accusation. 
And it's filled with big theology of a big and wondrous God. And then, verses 30 and 31, as has been the pattern for Isaiah in Isaiah 40, he gives us the application. What are we to do with this big theology? So we have accusation in 27, the answer in 28 and 29, and the application in 30 and 31. And so here's what I want us to think about today. I want us to think along those same lines with those same verse breakdowns, but asking these questions. What do we say when we're weary? What tends to be on our lips? What are we prone to say when we're weary? Who do we need when we're weary? That's what we'll see in the middle. Who do we need when we're weary? And then we'll close by answering the question, how do we wait when we're weary? How do we wait? How is it possible for us to wait when we are weary? Now, we are all very quick to excuse any of the regrettable things that we say or do. We say things afterwards like, I didn't, I didn't really mean that, or I wasn't thinking when I said that, or my mind was elsewhere. I'm sorry, I, I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, as if it was the bed's fault. I didn't sleep well last night. There's a theme. I'm, I'm tired. I, I'm just not myself. But if we're honest with ourselves, what comes out of us when our inhibitions are at their lowest, when our self-control is running on empty, it's an actual accurate picture of who we really are. It's not the whole picture. It, it might just be a small and prayerfully a rapidly diminishing part of our hearts, but it's no less true. It came out of us because it was in us to begin with. Countless people, before and since, like the Israelites, have felt crushed by their circumstances. For generations, these Israelites have been captives of a ruthless and blasphemous pagan nation. They've suffered indignities and trials and what is being squeezed out of them right now in this moment, it isn't pretty. Their circumstances are brutal, but they aren't causing these doubts. Their circumstances might be exasperating their feelings, they might be clouding their perspectives, but the doubts arise from their sinful hearts. And they voice from that sorrow this kind of doubt. My way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. You'll notice that these complaints have, have already moved past the questioning phase and into assertions of fact from their point of view. They don't ask, is my way hidden? Is my right disregarded? No. Here, they're not acting as heralds of good news like we saw back in 40 verse 9. Instead, they are boldly proclaiming bad news. They besmirch the capacity and the character of God. God is incapable of seeing me and my problems. He, he is not all-seeing. He is not all-knowing. He can't even see over the Euphrates and the Tigris to find me over here in Babylon. God can't. And even if he could, He's unwilling to help. 
He willfully and ongoingly disregards my need. The the justice that is, is due to me is ignored by my God. I have rights, and it's God's job to preserve them, and he has fallen down on the job. God can't, and God won't. These are heavy accusations, life-changing accusations. Are they true? The accusations themselves actually reveal far more about the Israelites than what they say about the Lord. By claiming that God can't see, they actually reveal their own blindness to all the evidence that God has given them, their own deafness to all that God has spoken to them. By by claiming that God doesn't care, they they actually reveal their own faint-heartedness, their own ability inability to persevere, to endure, to hang in there, to have faith. From their limited perspective and out of their own self-centeredness, they accuse God of being unholy and unjust when it's really their sin and their inadequacies that have gotten them into this mess. But they're not the first or the last to talk like this. There are even other folks in the Bible who talk like this. Job said stuff like this. Abraham said stuff like this. Isaac, Asaph, one of the writers of Psalms, he penned a lament that sounds a lot like Isaiah 40, verse 27. And what shouldn't be surprising is that when God answered all of those folks, whether it's in Job 38 through 41 or Genesis 15, or Psalm 77, in each of those places, he offered nearly the same kind of response, nearly an identical response that we'll see in the next couple verses of our sermon passage, which is great because these same kinds of pressures and these same kind of doubts are in our world today. Actually, they're in our hearts today. They're in this room today. Some of you are carrying huge weights, huge weights that veil the face of God, and they they raise doubts in your hearts and to your lips. Some of you, your your millstone could be the lonely burdens of single parenting while grappling with the wounds of betrayal. It could be the loss of a spouse, one that you saw dwindle over years before finally going to be with the Lord. Some of you have been facing what seems like an endless season of the darkness of the soul that has no apparent cause and and no immediate cure. Others are are grappling with the devastation of of finding out that a project you've poured blood, sweat, and tears into for years is being terminated prematurely by forces outside your control. And when those kind of rains come, they they drown out the reminders that God has given us that are meant to quiet the doubts. They threaten to raise a flood that will wash away the foundation of our faith and everything we built our lives upon. And if that's you this morning, if you're very aware of how crushing your circumstances feel and how loud your doubts are, either in your heart or on your lips, then I want you to know that you've come to the right place. 
I'm so glad you're here. And, and whether this is your first Sunday in church or whether this has been part of your life for decades, know that God has orchestrated in his providence for you to hear from Isaiah 40 this morning, to hear this comfort in this place. And, and whether everyone knows about your struggle or whether you feel completely isolated in it, this is the place for you to bring those complaints and to voice those fears. We are not intimidated by those hardships. We want to join hands with you and point you to our Savior because he is not intimidated by your hardships and your complaints and your fears. Instead, he has brought you here to speak comfort to you from Isaiah 40. Our passage voices your concerns and gives answers to them, the ones that you seek. But before I get to that, I, I want to real quick speak to those in the room who don't think I'm talking to them right now. Some of you are in here and you don't see yourself in verse 27. You'd say, Cole, my circumstances are great right now. And, and, and maybe my circumstances aren't ideal, but my, my faith is solid. And, and I would never say that God is blind. I would never claim that God is indifferent to my needs. Well, let me say two things to you first. First, all of us are either in a season of hardship, just coming out of a season of hardship, or about to go into a season of hardship. And unless in God's design your current trial ends in your heavenly homecoming, we all have another trial waiting for us just around the river bend. And so now is the time to prepare. Now is the time to look deeply into your heart and to find those weeds of doubt and to yank them up by the roots. But secondly, don't assume that it's only giant pressures that squeeze out this kind of slime from our hearts. Just this week, I have, I have proven that I wander off onto terrible paths over, over minor things. There was a text message this week that I sent to a coworker that was missed for several hours and it completely overturned my day, causing me to doubt whether or not God was really leading and, and guiding all things, including the, the minutia of my day. There was a knock on my office door one day this week that resulted in hours of unplanned projects that spoiled my attempts to get ahead on this very sermon and throwing into doubt whether or not God had heard the prayers I had just finished praying to bless and to guide my time in this passage. Maybe for you it wasn't a, a missed text message or a missed appointment. Maybe it was a missed meal or a few hours of missed sleep. Maybe it was an offhand comment by a coworker or a, a glimpse you caught of yourself in the mirror that sent your whole day or your whole week into a tailspin. Is God really in control? Does God really care? Does God really want to rescue and guide and lead? Is he really sovereign? Is he really good? Well, whatever the reason, big or small, we are all tempted to doubt the capacity and the character of God. And the questions come in a vast array of forms, but they all boil down to, is God able and is God willing to save? 
And the answers the Lord gives are straight to the point. His ability and his willingness to save are inherent to who he is and who he has always been and who he always will be. And that's why the Lord is who we need when we are weary. That's our second point. The, who do we need when we are weary? Well, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Pick up in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. The Lord is the everlasting God. Here, again, when we see the Lord in all caps, we have this covenant-keeping name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, the one who has repeatedly rescued his people and given them promises and held to those promises. The Lord is the everlasting God. Have you not heard these descriptions, he asks? Don't you remember? Don't you remember how I taught you these things? Don't you remember how I promised you these things? Don't you remember the stories you heard from your youth? Don't you remember the scriptures you buried in your heart? Don't you remember how you spoke about them as you walked along the way and as you rose and as you lay down? Don't you remember? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The Lord here is, is literally the one who is forever, the one who has no end, a time out of mind from eternity past all the way to eternity future. He has always been. He is the everlasting God. The Lord is the everlasting God. There is no end to him. We do not run out of him. All creation finds its it's being in him, for he created it. And in him, all things hold together. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. The, the picture here is that there's, there's no extent to him in time, and there is no uh, extent, there's no end to him in creation. He owns it all. All of it is his. Last week and earlier in the chapter, we saw that he holds all the parts Together in his hands, he measures them out. He controls all of them. And we see in creation how he has perfectly mixed those things together and designed it perfectly by his wise counsel. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the everlasting God. And he does not faint or grow weary. He does not sleep or slumber. Nothing wears him out. Nothing slows him down. He, he never misses a gear. He never needs to be recharged. This is so the opposite of each of us. The, the list of things that happen when I am tired is innumerable and embarrassing. When I wear down, I become impatient. I become selfish. I, I have to stop things that I want to continue. I, I, I make mistakes. I get distracted. When I am tired and weary, I, I, I look for other solutions. I, I look for shortcuts. Those are all things I do when I get tired and weary. And I know that they're the same for you. But not our God. Not the everlasting God. 
not the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. There are no external circumstances that wear him down. There is nothing within him that lacks strength. Those are all things that happen to us. We are faint. We grow weary because the forces around us grind us down and wear us out. Or because we lack that inherent strength, but not the everlasting God. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. It, it knows no end. So not only is he over time, and not only is he over, the, over all creation and all things physical, but he's over all wisdom Everything spiritual, everything visible and invisible was created by his hand. And his understanding is unsearchable. The NIV translates this unfathomable. Great word. Can't fathom it. We, we use that word in English, fathom. I can't fathom that. But we've, we've borrowed it. It's a nautical term, Right? So the idea was that, uh, that a boat needing to know if it could move into a bay or, or could, could traverse the waters in front of it would, would drop a rope over the side. And, and to measure out that rope, they would be stretched out by a sailor from one, from one end of his hands to another. And that stretch was a fathom. They may tie a knot uh, to mark it off or they could just stretch it out and they'd see how far down it had gotten from the weight that hit the bottom to the water at the, to the top of the wet rope and they would know how many fathoms of water was underneath them. And our God is fathomless. He is unfathomable. We cannot reach the bottom of it. Nothing we can create can plumb the depths of the wisdom of our God. His ways are unsearchable. When Job would talk about this, particularly in Job 26, he would say, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Everything we know about God, that he has been so kind to instruct us in, to reveal to us all of that, it's but the outskirts of his ways. It's a little bit of rope. It's a little bit of fishing line that I throw over the edge of the boat and that deep, unfathomable ocean of all of God's wisdom and all of God's greatness and all of God's power. And inherent to his ability to rescue, inherent to this wondrous ability to save, is his inherent willingness to do so. He doesn't hold that strength to himself, but he gives power to the faint, verse 29. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. This, this word here, it, it's actually a, a participle. So it, it means it's ongoing. It means that as Isaiah has listed out these things about God, everlasting God, creator, doesn't grow faint or weary, understanding is unsearchable, giving power to the faint. It's one of the characteristics, the inherent characteristics of who he is. God, out of the, the depths of who he is and the mercy and grace, he gives strength to those who are weary. 
He offers it freely from himself. To those of us who are worn out by the pressures of life, to those of us who have no inherent strength in and of ourselves, we can find it in the source, in the everlasting God, the everlasting God who gives strength to the weary who wait on him. So how do we go about accessing this power? What do we do with this? What do we do with these glorious reminders of God's willingness and ability to save? Well, as has been the pattern in all of Isaiah 40, Isaiah turns from these big theological truths to these life-changing applications. And we're instructed here on how we are to wait when we are weary. In light of the God who, who never wearies or faints and who willingly shares that strength with the weak, we should not trust in ourselves. That's the first and obvious conclusion. We should not trust in ourselves. We should not trust in our own abilities. We should not trust in our own perspectives. What we see is bound by time and space. God sees all because he is the everlasting God. What we can do is bound by what we ate or drank this morning. But God, who is the creator of the ends of the earth, does not grow faint or weary. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Why trust in them? Why trust in ourselves? Why even trust in the best versions of ourselves? Because they fall. They fall dramatically. Even the most vigorous among us wear out. However you picture this verse in your mind, whether it's uh, toddlers like running circles around their parents or or, uh, a supreme Olympic athlete uh, running uh, circles around a track at at record-breaking time, or maybe you think of like an elite team of of Navy SEALs, of of chosen warriors, and and they're running down the enemy. Whatever you picture as the the peak of human energy, well, all that always comes with pictures of weariness and depletion. It's that, that toddler conked out on his dad's shoulder, just being carried around the rest of the park. It's the athlete stumbling across the finish line, just barely able to make it or didn't make it at all. It's the the pictures of the wounded and the dead of war. Even these stumble and fall. And so we are to be warned, don't trust in yourself. I think particularly this is a warning to young folks If you feel vitality, if you feel vigorous, be warned, your current strength is an illusion. And at 16 or 26 or whatever you might be, you might feel unstoppable, but you are not. You have limitations by design. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And when you reach those limitations, if you're not careful, You'll be prone to doubt and despondency. So don't misdiagnose why the Lord has revealed your limitations. Revealed them this morning from this text. Revealed them when you run out of energy at your next task. It might not merely be that he's trying to teach you more about discipline 
and determination. Those are important, but they're not enough, especially if we're attempting to do them in our own strength. It might be that the Lord is bringing you to the edge of yourself to teach you about dependence and about endurance that comes from him. And and let me just briefly speak to those on the other side of the hill. Some of you have no doubt that youth grow tired and weary. You've got your own stories of stumbling, whether literally or figuratively. And, And the temptation you might feel is just to hang it up. to to coast the rest of the way, to take kind of a a fatalistic posture, to just throws your hands up and says, well, God's got it, and so I'm just going to sit back and watch. And then you are prone to ignore commands like Romans 12, verse 11, that says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so don't misdiagnose while the Lord has revealed your limitations. It might not merely be to understand better rest and reflection, especially when you try to do that to regain your own strength from human sources. Rest and reflection are important, but they are not enough. It might be that the Lord is bringing you to the edge of your abilities to teach you dependence and endurance as well. Verse 31 says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But what are they waiting on? What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting on God to bring them back to himself, just like he said he would. And the Israelites have every reason to trust in the Lord and to eagerly expect that he will fulfill this promise because they've heard this before and they've seen him do it before. In Exodus 19, Israel is is encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. It's just three months after they've crossed the Red Sea. And the Lord calls to Moses from the mountain. And this is what he says. And I want you to listen for how this sounds like Isaiah 40. Listen for the key words, the, the repeated words. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When we read fly on wings like eagles, we don't need to have uh, Michael Jordan lifting up off the ground in our minds to the, to the soundtrack of I believe I can fly. When, when Isaiah spoke of eagle's wings, he wanted his readers in the exile to think of the exodus, to remember how God bore them up and carried them to freedom when they had no hope of rescuing themselves. And God has promised to do it again, to redeem his people from their sin and exile and to bring them back to himself. And that's exactly what he will do. 
And those kind of promises still stand today. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we, are, we justly stand condemned. We are far from God because he is holy and we are not. And, and the good and right punishment for our sin, for our treason, for our slanderous thoughts and words about his character and his, his ability, well, that's everlasting punishment from the hand of the everlasting God. But God, who is rich in mercy and whose ways are unsearchable, sent us a redeemer, sent us one to rescue us, to bring us back to himself, to lift us up on wings like eagles and to bring us to him. And that is his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He bore our sins and our shame on the cross and he died as an atoning sacrifice. But by the immeasurable power of God, Christ was raised from the dead so that all who trust in him, all who hope in him, all who wait on him as their Lord and their Savior will be pardoned and will have everlasting life with him. And so Jesus turns to us and he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gracious offer from the one who sees your way. Because it's not hidden from him, from the one who has taken up your cause and has not left you neglected. Would you today... Right now, trust in this Savior. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from your own strength, which will lead to your fall. And instead, trust in the one who took the fall for you, but who rose, conquering sin and death as the everlasting God and now offers you his strength. Will you turn to him and trust him as your Lord and Savior? Repent of your sins and trust in him and in him alone. If you've never done that, we would encourage you to do that right now. Turn and trust in him. And if you want to find me after the service, I'll be right down here up front. Or you, you can catch anybody here in the room. There were lots of us lingering after the service to catch up. And we would love to spend time answering whatever questions you have about our Savior and what it means to wait for him. Because that's what we're all striving to do. We are seeking to wait on the Lord so that we can renew our strength. And, and, and to understand this, we have to rightly understand what the Bible means to wait for the Lord. Waiting here does literally mean waiting. It, delaying moving on or, 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 or accomplishing the next task or, or running ahead of how the Lord would act. But built into this response are the ideas of hope and of trust. Actually, if you're reading an English translation other than the ESV, that might be exactly how they've translated the Hebrew for us. They may have used the words, those who hope in the Lord, or, or those who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength. Hope in the Bible isn't just some kind of optimistic uh, future thoughts, but it's certain expectation. 
looking forward and knowing this will happen. That is the hope we have in Christ. That is the hope we have as believers. And, and it's linked to trust. So our, our, our faithful reliance on God, that he will deliver on the promises that he has made as he has countless times before. He does not faint or grow weary. He's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and we can trust in him. This kind of waiting mixed with heavy doses of, of, of trust and of hope, it is, it's like when your mom uh, tells you not to spoil your dinner with a snack right before. You're hungry, you want to eat, and in the next hour or so, a meal will be prepared for you. And you are tempted to think that it's not worth the wait. You are tempted to think that something could be had that would be better now. You're tempted to think that mom doesn't have your best interest in mind when she tells you, wait, supper's almost ready. But, but built into that obedience there are measures of hope and of trust. It's that certain expectation that whatever she's cooking up is going to be far better than what I can scrounge for myself from the pantry. And I trust, based off of a long track record of faithfulness, that that meal will come and it will be better. It will be healthier. It will be tastier it's worth it. The delayed gratification will result in greater satisfi- satisfaction. And, and, and built into that hope and trust is also measures of honor and love. Moms worked really hard to prepare that meal. And, and we're going to honor that sacrificial service to us by not ruining her labors by getting something that's not served, on the, by coming to the table with a full belly. And, and, and we wait, we honor that, we, we love her well in those ways. It's the same as when we wait on the Lord. When we wait on the Lord, when we don't run ahead, we don't choose our own ways, we're trusting him based off of a wonderful track record and on certain expectation and to honor him and out of love for him we wait. And waiting in the Bible, it's an active thing. It's not an inactive thing. It's not passive. We don't sit around twiddling our thumb, waiting for God to show up. Wherever we see waiting, we see action. Whether it's in Psalm 25 or 27, which we've studied earlier this year. Whether it's in Luke 2, when we see Simeon and, and Anna waiting in the temple for the consolation of Israel. Whether we see it with the parable in Luke 12, verses 35 through 37, about the the servants who are waiting for their master to return, and they are awake, and they are alert, and they are dressed, and they have their lamps burning brightly. In a couple weeks, we'll be in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, and there we'll see that that those who wait on the Lord are active in in renouncing ungodliness and of living self-controlled, upright godly lives as they wait for our blessed hope. They don't do this from their own strength. They do this because they have been strengthened by the one who gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. They don't do this because they're trying to muster it up or to prove themselves to God, but because God has proven himself 
to us time and time again. They trust in him. They hope in him. They wait for him. That's the hope of heaven. That one day all these trials and all these hardships will be things of the past. And we'll have new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will have new strength to live forever with our everlasting God. Because waiting, it's not new to the life of a believer. Waiting is the life of the believer. Waiting is is God-dependent endurance, no matter our circumstances. And even when our circumstances do not change and the hardships continue, we endure because we're dependent on the one who gives strength to the weary, the one who, who causes us to be like him in his strength so that we can wait on him without fainting or stumbling or wearing out. And by this kind of comfort, the comfort, comfort that he offers to his people, believers endure to the end. They don't fall away. They don't fall back. They're not lost because his hand causes them to endure. It strengthens them. This isn't comfort that allows us to make it through a competitive football game or even a whole season, a season of ups and downs and twists and turns. No, this is the kind of strength that is meant for a lifetime on this earth and eternity with him. And so with our eyes set on heaven and our hearts ready to endure with the strength the everlasting God provides, we do not grow weary, but instead we rise up on wings like eagles. We run and do not grow weary. We walk faithfully and do not grow faint. Let's pray.